Let, let's put a little more biblical spin on those questions. Why would Noah build a mammoth ark for a mammoth flood, the likes of which, which ha had never, ever happened before? Why would he do that? Well, we know the story. The answer is because he had some insider knowledge. Noah had some insider knowledge. No one knew some things. God had warned him that he was going to send a flood unlike any flood that they had ever experienced and that this flood was going to bring destruction upon everything. But God wanted to, to save the, the creation. He wanted to save the animal kingdom. He wanted to save Noah's family. And so he gave him some directions to, to build this ark. So he had insider knowledge, but it did require some cooperation, and it did require some participation on his behalf. We've spent the last two and a half months in a sermon series that we've titled The Cost of Discipleship. And in this series, we've been traveling through the, the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, one last time, let me give you the context of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is surrounded by a large crowd. And he sees these people who have come from everywhere, and he chooses to withdraw from the large crowd with his very small group of disciples, and he begins to teach them about what a life of discipleship entails. He begins to kind of lay out for them what is the cost of discipleship. And immediately what we've seen, and I imagine what the disciples were, were understanding right away, is that this life that Jesus invites us to, that Jesus calls us to, it is a, a radical, countercultural way of life. The, the crowd is not traveling this way. He's calling us to travel in a way that the, the world is not. In this life, what is highly valued Jesus says is humility. I mean, right away, just stop there. It is so contrary to the way of the world. What is highly valued is humi humility. This life, he says, you are to be committed to being peacemakers. In this life, you are called to embrace persecution for righteousness' sake. In this life, you are to trust not the counsel of man, what seems wise in the eyes of the world, you're to trust the counsel of God and what seems wise to him, which may, in fact, seem unreasonable to us. I mean, think about Noah. This command to build an ark had to seem crazy. And to everyone who's watching Noah build the ark, they had to be thinking, what are you doing? But he had some insider knowledge that they didn't have. The Sermon on the Mount confronts us with some imperatives that on the face of it seem unreasonable. It causes us to resist and want to push back. Go the extra mile. I mean, you just play that out and you think, that, that's going to cost me. Go the extra mile. Give to everyone who asks. Love not just your neighbor, but your enemy as well. Forgive instead of getting revenge. Don't store up treasure 
in this life. Don't worry about your life. God knows what you need, and he's going to take care of you. Judge not, lest you be judged. These are our challenging statements that push us beyond human logic. We're not going to arrive at those conclusions based on the wisdom of the world. And so the question that, that this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, usually evokes really two questions. One is how. Like how in the world are we going to actually live into this? And the second question often evokes is, what exactly does this mean? I mean, it sounds so clear-cut, but when you begin to apply it to life, it instantly becomes kind of murky. Like, what does this really mean? But there's a more fundamental question that we need to ask and answer, and that's what we're going to be doing today. And that question is, why? Why would any of us here today choose to embrace the high cost of discipleship. Why would any of us today read the Sermon on the Mount and say, I'm going to live my life this way as best as I can? The answer to that question is really not that different as to why Noah built an ark. It's because God has given us some insider knowledge. There's some things that we know. So we're going to be talking about that this morning. Join me as we pray. Lord, we ask you to aid our reading and our hearing and our doing of your word by the power of your spirit. And I pray that you would silence any competing voice that would cause us to dismiss your word or to distrust what you've said. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you our rock, and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we're concluding the series and we are concluding the Sermon on the Mount with the, the final passage. Matthew 7, verse 24 to verse 29. Therefore, therefore, in light of everything that I've just said, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Recently, I was reading, rereading Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from Birmingham Jail. Uh, to remind you uh, the circumstances of that letter, King had been in prison because of his participation in a nonviolent protest against segregation. And while he's in prison, he's learning of a number of church leaders, a number of pastors who are criticizing him, publicly rebuking him, saying that his actions are, are unwise and untimely and frankly not very Christian, not very Christ-like. And so he learns of his 
uh, public rebuke, and he writes a letter back to these church leaders. And in this letter, there's two sentences that have jumped off the page to me. Two sentences in which I, I think that Martin Luther King has, was proven to be very prophetic. Listen to what he writes. The judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If the church of today does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authentic ring, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. So when I hear what he's writing, what I understand him to be saying is that the church must once again embrace the teaching from the Sermon on the Mount. We must once again embrace the cost, the high cost of discipleship. If we don't put into practice the words that our Savior taught us, that which we're building, Martin Luther King says, is going to collapse. There's going to be no authenticity, and everyone's going to know it, and so we're going to lose the loyalty of many people, and by others, we're just going to be dismissed altogether as irrelevant so now we are in the 21st century, and we have some data points to suggest that Martin Luther King was not wrong. 85% of the churches today in the United States are in a state of decline. Just during the time that I've been the pastor of this church, almost 20 years, one in every four churches across our country has closed its doors. That is incredible. Incredibly alarming. One in every four churches in just the last 20 years has closed its doors. And looking forward, we are on a precipice where that number is just going to skyrocket even more. The number of churches that have 40, 50, 60 people that are hanging on by a thread right now is enormous. Meanwhile, during that same 20 years, the population has blown up. We have 50 more million more people today than we did 20 years ago, and yet we have 25% less churches. And so this task of reaching one more person for Christ, this unfinished task, is becoming more unfinished. And so we've got to ask, what's the path forward? If you care at all about that, what's the path forward for the church? And what I would like to suggest this morning is that the path forward is not the pursuit of more worldly power. The path forward for the church is not to, to somehow get some more power in our country. It's not a political solution that's the need of the hour. The need of the hour is for the church, us, to once again embrace the high cost of discipleship. The need of the hour is for us to commit to that narrow way that has, Jesus has outlined for us in the Sermon on the Mount. 
The need of the hour, in King's words, is to recapture that sacrificial spirit of the early church. So let's work our way through this. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, everyone, it is staggering that today, some 2,000 years later, you and I are included in that word, everyone. I mean, we go back to that day and we have to imagine Jesus withdrawing from the crowds, calling to him just a small group of disciples, looking them in the eye, Mary, James, John, Peter, Joanna, whoever's there, that small group of disciples, he's looking them in the eye. And and now we recognize that not only is he looking them in the eye, he's looking me in the eye. And he's looking you in the eye. His words that he spoke to them, they have no expiration date. They are as applicable in the 21st century as they were in the 1st century. I mean, these are not the words of a a philosopher. They're not the words of an author or an inspired artist. They're not the words of a a self-proclaimed influencer or cultural architect. These aren't the words of someone who's like a leader in industry, someone who we recognize as successful. The words that we've been reading from the Sermon on the Mount, they're God's words. The very words of God, and we've heard them. He's given you insider knowledge. It's staggering. The privilege that we've been given with these words the one who spoke life into existence has told us how we are to live that life. And he says, live life this way and you will be blessed. You will be blessed in this life. You will be blessed in the next life. We know, we've heard the words. Everyone who hears these words and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. That word and is such a a powerful word. For many years, the church has has, uh, debated the words. Like, we debate the doctrine, and we do it well. We write books and books and books about the words, about the, the doctrine, to make sure that we get the words right, we get the right doctrine, and that's all so very important. But often, that's where we stop. We stop right before that word, and. It's not enough to to know the words. It's not enough to interpret them correctly if we don't add the and. And put them into practice. I was trying to to think of an analogy, and and I I came up with this one. It's like Karen saying to me, "Uh, honey, tomorrow's trash day. Will you collect the trash? Now, implied in that is obviously take the trash out to the curb, right? But, you know, if I'm a literalist, she asked me to collect the trash. And so I go around the house and collect the trash and have it all nice and orderly and then leave it by the door. And the garbage truck comes and leaves and the trash never actually made it out to the curb. But I I collected the trash. If we are just hearing the words, but we're not putting them into the practice, 
we're missing the point, aren't we? The point is to, to actually not just be enlightened, but to, to put the words into practice. Practice, that's a, that's a great word. Everyone who puts these words into practice, what does practice mean? It means there's some action involved, like I've actually got to do something, but the word practice is really a gracious word. The word practice implies that there's this, this growth that has to take place. There's this journey. There's this, this learning curve. Like, we're not going to knock it out of the park perfectly right away. Nevertheless, we're called to, to practice. And so let's just walk through a few of the things that we've heard in the Sermon on the Mount and, and ask ourselves, what would it mean to put this into practice? <laughs> the very first verse I memorized as a, a young adolescent boy was, was this one. You've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. It was very applicable back then. Uh, but I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has committed adultery in his heart. And so we hear that and we experience the conviction of the Holy Spirit and we say, okay, I am going to put these words into practice. What does that mean? Well, it means maybe I, I start paying attention to what it is that I'm looking at. Because the, the eye is where the, the problems begin. And so we maybe stop watching a few shows. And we become more mindful of what we're doing on our phone. And maybe we even put in a, a filter on our phone that will block certain websites. And maybe we, we go out and we communicate with another person and, and confess this is something I'm trying to grow in. And we get an accountability partner. We're practicing does that mean the struggle is over? No, but we're, we're putting Jesus' words into practice. Or how about this? We've heard Jesus teach that we ought to give to those who ask. That's a, a very practical teaching. Give to everyone who asks. And now I've got to put that into practice. So how am I going to put that into practice? Well, maybe the first thing I need to do is pay attention to that reflexive excuse that I'm so good at giving as to why I can't give, and, and just cut that out of my vocabulary, that, that instant reflex. And then I might even say, you know, once a week, I'm going to stretch myself, and I'm going to say yes to something where it's going to stretch me beyond my, my resources, something where I want to say no, I'm going to say yes, or maybe I'm going to do that once even every, every day. We get into practice. We've heard Jesus teach that we are called to, to love our enemy. I mean, talk about a command that, that pushes us beyond what seems reasonable. Love our enemy. So I want to get into practice about that. I have a hard time just loving the person who annoys me. You know? So I'm going to start there. I'm going to start practically thinking, how can I demonstrate love towards this person who annoys me? What's something else I can do? I can pray. Jesus calls us to pray for our enemies so that that person who identifies me as an enemy, that group of people, I'm going to begin to pray for them. I'm practicing. We've heard Jesus say, uh, ask and you'll receive. Knock, the door will be open. Seek and you will find. And so we're going to put that into practice. What does it mean? I'm not going to start filtering my prayers anymore. I'm not going to keep filtering my prayers. Instead of 
figuring out what, what's worthy of prayer and what's too little for, to bring to God, I'm going to bring it all to God. I'm going to knock on that door like I've never knocked before. I'm practicing, and in the process of practicing, I'm growing as a disciple. And if you're a, a basketball coach and you take your basketball team to practice and you ask them to shoot free throws, they're going to miss a few. But the point is to improve as free throw shooters. And, and that's what we're called to do to practice. So hear, hear what Jesus said one more time. Everyone who hears the words, puts them into practice, is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The storm came, but the house did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But the person who hears the words and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The storm comes and the house falls with a great crash. So what separates the wise person from the foolish person, according to Jesus? It's not the words. It's not the teaching. They have both received the same words. They've received the same insider knowledge. What separates them is their practice. One puts the teaching to practice, the other does not. One says, Jesus, that was a great sermon. Like, man, you knocked it out of the park, Jesus, way to go, but walks away with no intention of getting into action. While the other begins to think, what are some of the things that God's calling me to do? What's a next step? I mean, forget the big picture, just a next step. What's the next step that I can do in obedience? For a time, it's impossible to tell the difference between the two. When the conditions are favorable, when it's sunny, you look at the two and they look no different. The person who has just heard the words versus the person who's putting them into practice. But eventually the storms blow in. And when the storm blows in, it reveals our foundation. And then we see the difference. So I want to conclude our sermon series by returning to the original question that we began with, and that's the question, why? Why would any of you today embrace the high cost of discipleship? Like, you, you cannot be a Christian and just go with the way of the world you won't embrace the cost of discipleship. This is going to require something of us. It's going to require us to get into action and do some things differently. So the question is, why? Why would any of us do that? In the end, there's a lot of reasons, but I suppose the, the one reason is, is love. It is our love for Jesus that compels us to live the Christian life. It compels us to walk the Jesus way. It compels us to live as disciple. All of this teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, it's not abstract. It's not an abstract idea. Jesus is the embodiment of the Sermon on the Mount. So when, when you think about, why, why do I love Jesus so much? I promise you, you're probably thinking about some characteristics that show up in the Sermon on the Mount. I love him so much because he's, he's humble. 
and because he's gentle and because he's not condemning, he's not judgmental, but he's, he's gracious. I love him because he's faithful. He, he keeps his word. I can depend upon him. Jesus is irresistibly attractive. And you know what? It's not only to us. It's to the world. So when Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount, remember the crowds that are over there? You know what's happened? They've slowly been meandering over and listening to what he's been saying. And you know what they say? It's amazing. Like these things that he's saying, it's amazing. They are drawn to him. There's something that is, is charismatic that, is, that the world is hungry for in these words of Jesus. But they're hungry not just for the words. They're hungry for the life when that, those words are put into practice. And so we're not going to end with Martin Luther King's prophetic declaration. We're not going to end today that the church is going to be dismissed as irrelevant. The church is not going to be authentic. We're going to end with Jesus' words. If we embrace the cost of discipleship, if we return to the Sermon on the Mount, listen to what Jesus says will happen. Your light will shine before others, and they will see your light. They will see your good deeds, and they will glorify our Father in heaven. That is the future that God calls us to, for our light to shine, and then, then God spreads that light, and and the kingdom grows. Join me as we pray. Lord, none of us have the, the willpower to do this on our own. It's only through your power at work in us that we can, can follow you. And so, Lord, we pray, we invite you to do a work in each of us. Lord, may we not be the, the people who hear your words and say those are great words and then walk away and don't do anything different. Lord, I pray for every single person here that you would give us one next step, one next step that we can put into practice to be who you've called us to be. We pray this in the power of your son's name. Amen.